Welcome to Bipolar Inquiry, drafting and crafting bipolar consciousness since 2016 by philosophizing, relanguaging, and harvesting mania's special messages, meaning visions, extraordinary experiences, ideas, insights, superpowers, possibilities, synchronicity, and parallel worlds. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information discussed on the show is not medical advice. Now, let's get started with this episode. sleep. I started to feel kind of sleepy and I was laying in bed and I actually fell asleep shortly after 9.30 and I took the six amino acid caps as well as a Benadryl and slept through the whole night. Didn't even wake up to go pee and I slept about 10 hours and I really needed that sleep after the weekend so I'm feeling a lot better and it feels good to have fallen asleep for the first time pretty naturally after being completely off my psych meds. Saturday night was the first night off and Sunday was the second and both those nights were kind of difficult and I had to take a second Benadryl. And I had a friend here which made it a little bit more difficult but back to my usual cozy routine and I just took one Benadryl and fell asleep quite easily. It seems like there's a window of falling asleep between 8.30 to 10.30 that it's good for me to just sort of stay calm and relaxed and ready to go to sleep when I'm ready. So I will be extra careful with that. And I made some notes yesterday after I finished editing my video about new elements to have dialogue about. And one of them is how I've talked myself out of the mental health system and now I need to perhaps talk myself out of going back into it or talk to myself to stay out of it so I could get complacent with the dialogue with myself and figure that I can just keep going and not really have to talk to myself now that I'm out of the system. But the thing is that the usual context of mental health is all around me and the usual context of society that can actually be quite, I don't like the word triggering, but provoking for some of these other elements because I find that I'm quite sensitive. So if I can at least have some conversation with myself almost every day in a way that it seems that I want to, then that could provide some of the energy to be able to keep my head above the clouds. A lot of what I've talked about with myself has been critical about the design of society and how it isn't in alignment with how the brain might want to transform and mutate. So even putting the mental health system aside and those influences, even just the influence of society having a sensitive brain could easily allow my brain to go back into the trajectory of being pathologized. So this dialogue now is not necessarily about talking myself out of the system, but keeping myself out of the system. And that's a negative statement. It's like saying I want to avoid that. But it's also about what do I want to move towards. So it's not just about talking to myself to be like, don't worry, you're not going to go back to the system and, and sort of wishful thinking, but also 
What kind of dialogue does my brain want to have with itself to naturally keep it moving away from the system? And that sounds like a negative statement again. So I'm not really sure what my brain would be moving towards. It's kind of the unknown. So perhaps the dialogue is a little bit about resting in the unknown of not knowing what a brain would want to talk about after transcending. The usual context doesn't require a lot of dialogue to stay in it. So the usual way of society, the supposed consensus, that is sort of like the gravity of how we are trained to perceive the world. And now after going through perceiving the world through being labeled and pathologized, and now coming out the other side, all that process I went through is still going to influence my way of perceiving. But I see that I have to continue to influence my way of perceiving by having a dialogue with myself because otherwise the gravity of society and and all those factors could easily pull my brain back down and into the mental health system. So there's the thing of having dialogue with myself outside the system and maybe rejecting all elements of the system in my life from now on, and I don't know about that, or continuing to be in some kind of interaction with the system, whether in in my work or even just being in society and not even going near the mental health system again could still pull my brain back down into the mental health system and being on the receiving end of services that I don't want. So I can see there's several several variables and several factors and energies and influences that by talking to myself I might be able to almost oppose that force of gravity, oppose consciousness from being pulled down again into that. And I feel like now it's not so much about talking about mental illness or anything like that, but it's actually just about being human. So in a way, I'm no longer a mental patient in that. I've moved myself away from supporting myself with medications. I'm not sure if I'll go back to some of the psychosocial rehab type services, but now it's about being human and remaining a human being that isn't seen as one that needs to be poisoned with psychopharmaceuticals in order to be a member of society. And how do I maintain that? And not just maintain it, but maybe there's another level of transcendence. So there's so many different elements that I can see right now. And I was in a conversation today with lots of people and I didn't really say too much, but I could actually really see what people were saying again. And that process in my brain has been turned off for weeks. So I was really seeing things and I didn't really want to say too much, but I felt like taking notes and I haven't felt like taking notes during a conversation with multiple people in a long time. So I think my brain is really getting reactivated again, which can sometimes get out of hand or I feel like when it's reached the peak of that, sometimes it does a little burnout. So I have to be watchful of that. And so yeah, the usual consensus reality or society doesn't require dialogue to stay in it. 
it actually requires, so this dialogue with myself might help to facilitate staying in that mode of perception and, and not moving back into society too much. And to me, the world feels like a dialogue that has been painted over with all these stories we're told to believe, and these cloud the way we see the world. And this cloud is sort of that level of society that just goes on at, on autopilot and it's sort of invisible to us and we think that that's just the way life is. So I feel like I need to maintain the dialogue and talk about being a human being off meds. I don't know how many of us get the opportunity to to make the choice to slowly taper off our meds and do it with some support and it's our own decision and I was talking about there's no celebration in this this could be a really celebrated aspect of the process of ever receiving a mental health label is having the opportunity to taper off and and support oneself in other ways and I feel like the system as it is now if I was to go back and say hey I'm not taking meds a lot of my supports would be withdrawn, even though in my mind I feel like if a person is able to maintain themselves without the meds, they could even get more supports because one might need more supports even if it's only during the transition period and then less later. But there should be more supports in place for people who want to go through this process because it should be a choice. Even if it doesn't work, a person should be fully supported and extra supported to come off these medications that most of the time we don't actually have a chance to really offer informed consent about whether or not we want to be on these meds. And there was a brilliant clip I watched and it was an interview with Dr. Kelly Brogan and it's actually in the series Vaccines Revealed and she was talking about how she was prescribing psych meds to pregnant women and she realized that she wasn't really giving informed consent because she realized that once a person went on the meds for say a bit of anxiety they might have a lot of trouble coming off the meds and actually experience other withdrawal effects which are also effects of the medication. So maybe a person's anxiety gets reduced, but now they're stuck on the medication and when they try and come off, they have nightmares and, and, and panic attacks and all these other things they never had before. So all those elements one never had before, whether as a side effect or during the tapering off process is actually part of iatrogenic illness or things that are induced by the care of a doctor or a prescribed treatment. And these are the things that we're never told about before we're ever put on them. Nobody in my mind that I know of goes to a hospital under the Mental Health Act and is said, we would like to put you on these medications because we think this will help what you're experiencing XYZ you have a label of bipolar disorder according to us and this is the treatment according to that label and my expertise but i want to tell you that if you're on this for more than a week or 10 days or two weeks and i'm just making up these numbers for illustration point and i'm not a doctor 
but they don't say if you're on this for more than X period of time, you're going to have a very hard time coming off these meds. Your body's going to become adapted to them, addicted to them, um, acclimated to them. And when you withdraw, you might experience all these other effects, which actually, if you withdraw and the doctor isn't well informed, they may interpret as just symptoms of your mental illness and and take that as further evidence that you need to be on these drugs indefinitely. So a doctor that knows about these things might say, I want to put you on this for for the rest of your life and you're never to come off. And then I guess that that kind of gets rid of the informed consent thing because if a doctor says you have bipolar disorder, you need to be on this drugs forever, and you believe that, then we'll never try to come off. So we'll never really experience the full effects of this iatrogenic factor. We'll still have side effects. We still may need to change medications. And during that change, we might have manifestations of things that will just be interpreted as our mental illness and not our body reacting to adapting to new meds or coming off a med that we're addicted to physiologically. So step one, right from the get-go, we're not given informed consent being put on these medications. It's always justified as this is the treatment protocol for this mental illness that we're deciding that you have after two days of evaluation or something like that. So that is a brilliant interview. I Maybe one day we'll try to get a clip of that to share or even maybe transcribe it and share it or something because the stuff that she said is just brilliant and it was in a perfect package that was quite easy to follow and understand. And when she realized what she was doing by putting people on medications for more than a week or two, it's not very long before the body gets adapted to the meds, she couldn't really do it anymore without providing full informed consent saying, it might be very hard to come off these if you're on it for a certain amount of time. And if somebody agrees to that and says, yeah, okay, I think I really need this treatment like you're saying, then then that's totally cool. That's someone's decision. But we're never told that. We're never told that once we're on them, it'll be very difficult to come off because that's what happens. And it's not the mental illness. They just say, oh, you have to take these forever. And I guess that kind of saves them from ever having to explain informed consent because just being arrested under the Mental Health Act is almost like saying, now you have a life sentence of taking these meds as soon as a doctor slaps you with a label. And that is not cool. So I would definitely go for informed consent. And if a person says, hey, I'll take these for two weeks, but after that, I'm not taking this stuff because my body will be addicted and it's going to give me other other types of supposed symptoms to come off it. And then if I try, people will say, well, oh, look, it's your mental illness when after being on the drugs for a certain period of time, it almost makes it so we are doomed to a life as a mental patient because the side effects or the, the symptoms, in a way, of coming off the meds can be worse than the symptoms we had before. And then it's, well, look, you need these drugs. So it's kind of a neat little trap that it's almost like, oh, take these for two weeks, and once a person takes them for two weeks, they're stuck in our system forever, whether they ever had one of these mental illnesses or not. And so it's just a, it's a trap. It's a vicious trap. And 
Um, maybe a lot of people are willing to still take the meds knowing that, but we're not told that. And we're just told that we have to take them. And I know someone who was able to escape that and had a long drawn out process. And eventually when the system figured out this person wasn't going to take the meds and not going to buy into the system, they just kicked them out of the hospital and, and that person escaped. Well, I bought in, I, I didn't escape initially and it took six years to get to this point, which again, there's no guarantee that I won't be trapped again at some point, probably by people who claim to love me the most and think that they're doing the best for me. And something disturbing I came across two days ago was a clip of Carrie Fisher's brother and he's talking about the success of Carrie Fisher being due to all the treatments she received and the help that's out there and at the end he said to as a message to young children and young people don't be afraid to ask for help because treatments do work and saying look at Carrie Fisher and almost using her celebrity as a character in Star Wars which so many kids just love using Carrie Fisher's celebrity in Star Wars to attract kids to the system of treatment that's available through the mental health system and I just think that's really wrong and really misleading Carrie Fisher's brother hasn't gone through it and if Carrie Fisher wanted to say that when she was alive she could have and maybe she did answered by some kind of child's mental health organization and and using a Star Wars character and person who went through treatment and, and died and they didn't say oh and she died of a heart attack and that could have been caused by complications due to medication which can never really be proven but it is proven in the scientific studies it can't necessarily be proven in her individual case but studies show we lose our 25 years. She died at about 60. Women can live to 85 on average-ish, and that's 25 years right there. So treatments do work, but they will kill you early, and it's hell, and it's suffering, even if they help a little bit at times, and maybe a lot at times, but that's not the point. The point is that there needs to be informed consent. There needs to be more support if people don't want to be on the meds. It's someone's choice. And if it's twice as much hell to get off them as before it was getting on them, someone should still be supported to be able to come off the meds because it's our body and we have a right to what we put in our body if we have not committed a crime. Drugging people <clears throat> preemptively as to think that we have a crystal ball to predict who is going to be dangerous to someone else and they should be medicated because, oh, they could be a danger to someone or themselves. That doesn't fly. It doesn't fly. And that's like saying psychiatrists have a crystal ball when they don't. And so talking to myself going forward, it's about being human again. And it's not like I wasn't human when I was on drugs for mental illness, but I feel like now that I'm not, I don't have that as part of my identity. And I'm not this chemically put back together human being. And there's a lot of people out there that swear by their mental health prescriptions. And that is so great. I'm not saying this doesn't work for anyone. I'm just saying that people should have a choice when to take them and when not to. And not be 
badgered for not wanting to be on them and coerced and and if someone is trying to come off them support withdrawn if it's a bumpy time and somebody is having a rough time and then oh well you should be taking your meds so we're not going to help you because you're acting worse than you were on your meds well it takes a while to to let them leave the system and perhaps i still have more to go through with that and even this morning i was feeling kind of ugh, and then all of a sudden i was doing some stuff and my brain was really engaged and focused and I feel more in this phase of action like wanting to get this dialogue in order and move into the next phase of talking to myself and so many things and before my dialogue with myself probably really early on I mentioned that I didn't really like the word recovery after a diagnosis I thought of it more as rediscovery and recreation of oneself after the crisis. And I'm feeling like this is a new rediscovery and recreation of, of myself after coming off the meds. So rediscovering what it's like to have a brain that doesn't have medications running through it 24-7. So really this is instead of rediscovery after crisis and labeling and medication, it's rediscovery after trans-ending. Trans-ending, trans-ending, trans-ending. I like this sort of idea of a trans-ending phase. It's the ending of the trans of needing those types of supports, chemical supports in the brain, and all the support that we get if we agree to do that. So what is it like to be a human without a chemical band-aid? Putting the ego together with this chemical and choosing to support my brain in a different way. So I haven't really discovered. I'm wondering, does this mean I don't have bipolar disorder? Or is bipolar disorder about being medicated? Or is it just bipolar consciousness and still having that propensity and that potentiality to have a consciousness that's not necessarily tethered to a consistent ego, just supporting it with nutrients and other things as opposed to medication. So do I still have that label or do I, is it something else? And I did reframe it in a lot of different ways. So is bipolar disorder tied to the mental health system or is bipolar still a word that kind of describes this consciousness but it's being supported in a different way so i haven't really decided about that and i also wonder if after transcending it's just discovery it's not necessarily rediscovery so after a diagnosis is it rediscovery and then after transcending the medication is it discovery and maybe discovering if I even want to or need to identify with that label. Moving forward, do I want to say, I am a person with bipolar who manages my mental illness with nutrients? Or do I want to say, I have proper nutrition to deal with stress and because of that I don't manifest anything that looks like bipolar disorder. But that can only be told with time as well. And what kind of lifestyle design factors do I have to 
augment and implement in order to ensure that be the way it it moves forward is part of the story just up to the universe and I have no real control I started to wonder if the universe induced those scary heart rate energy terrifying feelings a month after I got here so I would actually come off the meds here where it was safe to do so so was that part of the design of the universe to put me through this journey for six maybe I am kind of safe because the universe had that as part of the design or is there more that I have to learn will there be a lesson in terms of okay these micronutrients aren't going to be enough to support perception to be able to stay in a place where it's not living in fear and and manage the stress of being sensitive to the consensus world and and all of the implicit violence that's so subtle that we don't even see but the heart can feel and so after transcending its discovery for perhaps and part of that discovery is what to embody or how to embody how to embody somebody who has transcended and I speak about transcending even though it's been a couple of days and that could go back into being medicated at some point and I understand that but I would like to speak the language of where I'm at even though it's been just a couple of days because I feel like by speaking all the context that I did speak to myself it helped to get me to this point even though I was speaking about oh it's not bipolar disorder it could be this it could be that it's kind of like this it's kind of like that so I need to continue that speaking ahead of where I'm at in order to move into that in order to move into that context I have to create that context and just in these last few days I realized wow it's a whole new context to create do I want to create it around having this label or not having this label or whatever and even at Hardy Nutritionals they say it's not a cure really according to Andrew Saul he would say that I have a nutrient dependency and he hasn't said that to me but he has a video that is talking about nutrient deficiency versus dependency and it could be that people with bipolar have a nutrient dependency on certain nutrients that are just not sufficient in the diet or it could be the stuff I talked about before how a brain that moves into this kind of consciousness which is sort of non-dual at times it's sort of a non-duality consciousness needs different nutrition in order to actually transition and mutate into that state so I wonder if it's about taking these nutrients to stay in so-called regular consciousness or is it taking the nutrients to be able to move into different consciousness while being able to withstand and handle and not be too sensitive to regular consciousness because that's what's all around so are the vitamins actually suppressing the transition into other consciousness slowly and keeping one grounded in consensus or does it actually help the brain to move into new ways of perceiving while being able to handle the stress of the old world and I'm not sure about that I'm not sure I don't know because I've talked with myself about how a lot of stuff in supposed bipolar is reacting to more than oneself or reacting to more than the energies that the ego gives access to 
as the ego is kind of a limiter of the information we receive. So when that is a looser construct, more information gets in, but it's sort of translated into the language of how we're used to really being in this world and, and really conditioned, not just in the brain, but in our whole musculature and physiology of how to move and act and there's muscle memory. So part of it is actually to break through the muscle memory of the behaviors and we could start being sensitive with our brain, but our bodies haven't yet become agents of that sensitivity. We're still sort of lost in this limbo of the old energies and translating to our ego and trying to be in touch with the sensitivity in our brain and our perception, yet our body is still kind of congealed by the ego. And, and this is a flux and flow. And because anything other than the ego is the unknown, when we have access to these unknown energies, we really don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to come through us. We don't know how we're going to be or what we're going to do. And it feels like we're out of control, especially when that is also constantly being constricted by the ego and how that constricts the body. So really getting in alignment with this fluidity could be hard. And that could be part of this process of discovery is how to really contact this reality that isn't filtered through our conditioning in our brain, in our physiology, in our muscles, and almost trying to break free of that prison and that cage moment to moment. So, so far, these last couple of days, I've broken free in terms of not relying on medications, but my medicated body would still have a certain muscle memory. And, and it could be that now that the medications aren't holding that so tight, there could be some real mistakes in trying to break out of this cage that is surrounding me that was almost kept longer because of being medicated for so long. So will I go back to where I was six years ago when I was in this process of trying to break free? Will there be certain elements that seem to really go back 10,000 steps? And will that be scary to feel like again that I've moved backwards and not forwards? And will I feel like, oh, I've moved forward on the meds, and now that I'm off, I've moved backwards. But can I go back there and trust that this energy will break the trance that my muscles and my whole body is in being constricted by these chemicals and being constricted and, and staying in the consensus to some extent by this sort of false stuff. So the the medication is toxic, it's it's chemical, it's foreign, and it sort of keeps that extreme energy at bay by just lowering the total energy of the organism. It's like having access to all this energy and then taking a downer, just like we could take an upper and then get a lot of energy. If we're taking all these downers when we have a lot of energy naturally, then it's going to restrict that and keep our movements within a certain limitation. And, and doing that for six years... I feel like being off the meds, all of a sudden an energy could come through that wanted to come through but has been constricted for so long. So it's like the breaking of a dam. And hopefully with the micronutrients, that won't really happen to the same extent. And I'm hoping that the micronutrients are able to 
complement and energize and, and provide capacitance and, and hold some of the energy instead of moving it through so fast and allowing that energy to do what it needs to do without blowing out the nervous system, really. So yeah, I talked about a lot, but I have a lot more to talk about, and and that's just, I think, how it's going to be. And and that's that's okay. I'm talking to myself about things like whether I still have this label. And right now, I'm not going to be too quick to throw it away. Because everything's the same, in a way. I'm just managing, and I don't like the word manage, but managing things in a different way than I've been told. I've been told to manage with medication, and I'm managing with micronutrients. And it's been three days with no meds, and so far so good. Hopefully these days will continue, and I will just take micronutrients, perhaps for the rest of my life. Imagine if I was told when I was taken to the hospital, you have this mental illness called bipolar disorder, but you're going to have to take these micronutrients, these vitamins, for the rest of your life. I think I would have been okay with that. But to be told I need to take toxic drugs with a lot of side effects for the rest of my life, and acting like that is guarantee of a good life, when it's not, a lot of people have trouble with medications or need to change a million times. And a million is a bit of an exaggeration, but the suffering of that can be astronomical. So we'll see how long this lasts. And again, I'm talking way ahead of myself. I'm talking like this is going to keep going like this. And I won't have to revert back to the mental health systems. theories and 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 talking points of you have to take this for the rest of your life and all that with medication and I think that could be the power of positive thinking but I'm not thinking about it I'm just talking to myself and coming up with it mostly in the moment so it's it's positive dialogue in a way maybe it's having dialogue in a way that moves consciousness towards that which one is having a dialogue about. And that could be the power of self-dialogue, is to reaffirm the context through which one wants to live one's life. And I would like to live my life in the context of not being medicated. And my main reason for that is that I would like my 25 years back. I don't want to die 25 years early due to all the compounding effects of taking these toxic chemicals. Lithium's very hard on the kidneys. I'm hoping that my kidneys are enjoying the last three days of regeneration. And even if I'm not able to stay off medication forever, if I get thrown back in that system by my family or my friends, because I can't see myself doing it myself, if it's outside my own volition and I get thrown back into it and medicated, then at least I gave my body a break for some period of time. And and know that it is possible to be off medication, even if it's for a short period of time. Imagine if people could manage with something like micronutrients and then take meds only when very necessary. If more stress comes up or more trauma happens and, and they're needed temporarily, sure. 
but to say that one needs them every day, there's a lot of studies out there that says medications are helpful for two weeks max. And after that, in the long term, people who don't take medications actually do better in every factor and area of life. And the crappy thing is that once a person has been convinced they need these meds, after two weeks, they're probably stuck on them forever. So even if they might feel like they don't need them, when they try to come off, they'll feel like they might need them because they'll feel worse than ever. So I don't necessarily think the micronutrients are a cure for bipolar. The people at Hardy Nutritional says it's not a cure. So I'm not saying that I'm cured. I'm saying that I'm using something else to support myself. Micronutrients instead of toxic drugs. And it doesn't mean that my brain doesn't have the same propensities or dispositions or worldviews or perceptual capacities. I'm just choosing to manage it in a different way and that should be my choice. And I don't give my consent to being medicated for more than two weeks. And that's it. That's all there is to it. So there's got to be another way. And I found another way, at least for now. And I wonder if I will be supported if I share, not just supported in the system, but supported with how people feel. And I don't even think they'll be able to because they'll just react immediately and think, this person has a mental illness, they must be on drugs because we've all been brainwashed, whether we're on the drugs and labeled or not. Our family members can make it worse by thinking that that's what we need forever because that's what makes them feel safe. Because even if something does go wrong, they can just pass us back over to the mental health system and they'll fix it. Even if what the mental health system does to us is causing a lot of it in the first place. And I wonder why this is a scary thing, why it's a scary thing to have come off the meds and feel like this should be a celebration. People should be thrown a trance and dance. One has transcended and and where's the party? But at the same time, I feel like right now I will keep the celebration private and I will celebrate each day that I'm not on medication because it's not a guarantee that I'll be able to keep this up. And I'm wondering what factors will be in the way of whether or not I am able to keep this up. And that is part of this discovery phase, is really discovering what I need to remove from my life to be able to continue to not take meds. Because I'd rather remove 90% of the things and people from my life and not take meds than take meds to remain in an insane society and what my nervous system finds to be inane in its new sensitivity without medication. So if my nervous system is telling me this isn't right for me, I could take a pill and move further into it, or I could just say, peace out, sayonara, I don't need this. So I will, for now, have my own trance and dance, and, and who cares if no one ever knows? I guess the real gap is being aware of what I need to remove. So if there's somebody around me that's kind of bugging me, and I'm sensitive to it, and they know about my diagnosis and things, if I remain around them, I might start acting upset and angry, and then they'll be thinking, ooh. 
And even if they don't know that I'm no longer on meds, I know. And so I might feel like, I can't be around this person because I'm too sensitive to certain things. And I don't even exactly know what they are, perhaps. But moving away from that might save me from building up an allostatic load of, of stress. Building up that allostatic load. And hopefully I can go back to some of the terminology that... I learned from other people, such as Dr. Daniel Siegel and others, as well as some of the terminology and language I created with myself. I did that in order to move myself out of the trance, and can I do that to continue to move myself further away? And the further away I move, does that protect me? If I keep the mental health system close in some way, does that does that actually hinder the progress and the process? I really don't know, and that's yet to be seen. And when I go back home, will I continue to work a little bit in mental health? And will that actually be a bad decision? It could be. So it's interesting to have so much support and, and cheer and things when I share my story while I'm taking meds. And... And now that I'm not taking them, feel like I'm kind of alone. The one thing with having a mental illness diagnosis, even if one experiences some stigma or not, there's still a lot of people who are paid to to smile and nod and say, you're doing the right thing, you're taking your meds, you're, oh, you had a relapse, and oh, you got sick, and all these things, and sort of, pat us on the back along the way. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but there's a whole system designed to keep us thinking that medications are good. And if we do take them, then we get all these good services and support. But by not taking the meds, we're almost saying, I'm not mentally ill, or whatever. And then one doesn't get any support. So the supports come with medication. Medication gets one support. And... At the same time, they can cause a bunch of stuff that might actually lead to stigma because of how we can't think straight half the time, we can't see straight, we can't read, we're shaking, we can't do the same quality of motor skills because we're drugged. And and then it's hard to be employed and all these things. And, oh, don't stigmatize, you know, they have a mental illness. When a lot of those factors that actually get stigmatized are because of the drugs, not this supposed mental illness. So, no wonder they invest a lot in these anti-stigma campaigns because they're basically saying don't stigmatize the side effects of our medication. Not don't stigmatize the mental illness because almost everybody that has a diagnosis of a mental illness is on the meds. And all of the things that are side effects and are, are manifestations of being on the meds, not just having this so-called mental illness. But being on the meds, the meds always come with the mental illness label. That's what they're saying, don't stigmatize. Because after being medicated for two weeks, it's hard to get off the meds. It's hard when you're on the meds. It's hard to be on the meds. It's hard to increase the meds. It's hard to de decrease the meds. Everything about the meds is difficult. And that difficulty is what manifests in all these difficulties. And then that's what we're saying, don't stigmatize us for. So I think most of the stigma is actually... If there is an, an appearance of something, it's side effects of medication, and they're saying, don't stigmatize that. So, I don't know, that's kind of a weird view of it, but 
we'll see how that unfolds. So when I took the meds, there's a whole system there to support me. Now that I'm not taking them, there's probably nothing. So even though I disagreed with being labeled with a mental illness or saying, oh, you have a mental illness, being labeled with one and and believing it and owning it is different than being labeled with one and not actually seeing that way but still taking the treatments and then moving through the treatments and away from them because of the disagreement with that. And even if I was to say I do have a mental illness and maybe I'll say that one day, I don't know. Maybe I do, but this at the same time, I know there's a million ways to support and manage and move through anything. So to say that one has a certain manifestation in one's life and there's only one way to deal with it is just wrong, no matter what it is, whether it's cancer, mental illness, problems in relationship, problems at work. There's not just one way to to move with something and support something. It's just not that way. And I don't agree with toxic medications for all of life. It takes away from the quality of life. And I don't think that's something I talked about yet when I've been talking about how it takes 25 years from one's life. Not only does it do that, whatever years one has remaining after a diagnosis and being put on drugs, they suck. And not totally and not always, but a lot of us end up in our parents' basement room and eating food and watching TV and that's a manifestation of taking the drugs, not the mental illness, if there is one. So it decreases quality of life. It doesn't just increase mortality, it increases morbidity. It makes our life more morbid. It makes it less enjoyable. It's not just about the years left in your life, it's the life left in your years. And I didn't make up that statement, but that's also what it comes down to when taking these meds. It's not just I want my 25 years back. I want my 25 years that I have left before that last 25 years starts ticking. I want the whole 50 years to be a lot better. If I was to be on the 800 milligrams a day of Seroquel or something that that doctor wanted to put me on a year ago, I'd probably be 250 pounds right now and be barely able to move, barely able to speak, flat affect. It would have been a disaster. But since I know it wasn't right for me, I went on the hard and scary journey to where I'm at now. So there's lots to that and I'm wondering if my brain needs to get used to some of these non-dual experiences and consciousness and whether it's good to integrate some spiritual language, actually do some reading in order to move into a context of maybe spiritual interpretation in case something else does happen. A lot of people who go through crisis of this kind in shamanistic cultures, they they get they get initiated as a shaman. And that doesn't mean that butterflies start flying out of their ears and everything's peachy from that moment on. From what I've heard, it's quite the tedious process and very difficult. And so is this process perhaps to move through some of these experiences. 
after coming off meds and maybe there'll be more experiences that move towards me that I actually need to process and that process could be reinitiated of beginning to process some of those processes and I really don't know and will I revert to a fear mentality or will I be able to be with some of those energies and I've talked about how it seems like some people get sensitive to way more energy than just beyond what we're usually used to and the translation of that through the body in everyday life can be a bit chaotic and can manifest in very chaotic ways and it can be difficult so maybe those difficulties will come back more I don't know and do I need to maybe read Stan Groff's book the stormy search for the self I did read some of that before do I need to go back to some of that to a lot of the language that some people have been through these crises and move through it in a spiritual context have done my context with myself has been more around moving out of the mental health language and creating my own language but at this point would it be helpful to move into some of the language that people created and I did read a little bit of that years ago but through this process, I've been mainly focused on just the dialogue with myself and what that creates. But would it be a good safety net to really get with some of the other stuff that people have said? And Sean Blackwell has created that great series, Bipolar or Waking Up. And I remember watching that again, perhaps earlier this year or later last year, and thinking, wow, I resonate with everything he's saying. So can I remind my nervous system of those so then it can be called upon in those moments can those associations happen in those moments where I need something to associate with in order to save me from the associations of mental illness and, and the mental health system and we're so programmed to believe in all of those things even if we've never been labeled that if something did happen we might think oh my god I'm, I'm going crazy this must be a mental illness. When if we only had this other, say, spiritual context, if those things happened, we would think something spiritual was happening. And that's one of the reasons why, in the beginning, I never thought, oh, I have a mental illness. I thought spiritual things were happening because I was reading spiritual stuff. Or could spiritual stuff, the reading of spiritual stuff, actually provoke some more of these experiences? And maybe I just want to stay somewhat grounded and not invite that back. And I think part of this process has shown me that it's difficult to actually read things that are out of place in the moment. Reading a book written by somebody else 20 years ago on their experience 30 years before that. So it's really moving consciousness away from the present moment. And that's why I like self-dialogue and it could be important for people with this bipolar disposition or whatever you want to call it to remain in the moment as much as possible because we have access to so much more information that if we really get with the moment we can we can harvest the information from the moment by by having an insight into something writing it down and extrapolating that instead of looking at other people's insights and then getting the brain all confused and being able to see other people's insights from other places in time which can kind of transport the brain to other places in time and and get it a little bit confused about 
where it is and what it's all about. And so yeah, it could be important to just stay mostly with my own dialogue, at least for now, because other things really stretch the brain. It's, it's again, I think I was talking about how so-called brains in regular consciousness are, are, are anxious to gather all the bandwidth. Whereas if I look at something that somebody wrote that was kind of genius 30 years ago, it puts my brain into an extrapolation that can see way more bandwidth with just seeing a little bit of somebody else's information. So it's this reverse filtering process. If I have a regular consciousness brain, I might read a book and, and glean a number of interesting tidbits and kind of file them away in my brain. But if I have a reverse bandwidth brain, it actually creates a lot of bandwidth from reading a little bit of bandwidth instead of reading a lot of bandwidth and retaining a small amount of bandwidth. So knowing that, it's sort of important to be kind of a creator and not just a consumer and reinterpreter and mixing around a little bit of what other people said and taking it on one's own. So it seems that I have bandwidth anxiety in a different way. It's keep the bandwidth away from me because that will just make my brain see way too much, way too quickly. And it creates its own bandwidth related to that. Because it can really see what the other person is saying. And when it can really see that, it can see much more beyond that. Instead of just saying yes and no to what somebody's saying, really seeing it. Whether, not just saying, oh I agree with that statement, I disagree with that statement, I agree with that statement, I don't like that statement. That doesn't make sense, that makes sense really really seeing it's it's a totally different dimension so back to what Carrie Fisher's brother said about seeking treatment for children and children seeking treatment and it's a message for children and how treatments do work and they kill you 25 years earlier they do work at that too And they make you fat and not able to have sex and not able to enjoy anything and barely able to speak. So I don't know if that's worth it. And I was thinking about the language of psychiatric survivor and and I don't know if I resonate with that. I think I resonate more with my own term of trance ended. And the thing is that we really have to work to end our own trance. Nobody's going to do it for us. Every other element in the whole system is working to maintain that trance. The way the workers are trained, the way the psychiatrists are trained, the pharmacists are trained, the pharmaceutical techs are trained, the police are trained, the psych nurses are trained, the mental health workers, the social workers, everybody is trained to see us in this way and talk to us in this way and make us believe in this way because they believe in this way even though if they were to go through it they probably wouldn't want to believe in this way though a lot of them do end up going through it because a lot of percentage of people eventually do and maybe actually do believe it because that's the way they were trained. I really don't know. And I'm reading that book by Dr. Mercola, Fat for Fuel, and he said, as the body becomes more adept at burning fat for fuel, basically talking about how we can 
allow the body to adapt to burning fat for fuel if we eat mostly fat. But it made me realize that we can make certain aspects of our being more adept at certain things. So can we make perception more adept at burning beauty for fuel instead of conflict? Because the ego is conflict and we're always in conflict in terms of wanting more or more or something else or better or different. And, and this is a conflict. It's a conflict with the present moment. It's a conflict between what is and what should be. And that's something Krishnamurti would say. And, and so the body is very adept at moving in reality based on having these conflicts of wanting something else psychologically than what the moment seems to be providing. But when we can get with what the moment seems to be providing and see that, see that instead of what it seems to be not providing, which is a very small something. And there's this immensity, this vastness that it is providing that we're not able to meet. And can we become more adept at meeting that? Can we be more adept at perceiving beauty and allowing perception to burn the fuel of beauty instead of, of having these, these, these tweaks of energy through the conflict that we're experiencing. We're always moving in this contradiction. So can perception become more adept at perceiving beauty and moving in the field of beauty as opposed to moving in the field of conflict with our thoughts? And that conflict with our thoughts preventing perception from seeing and moving with beauty. Can our eyes move from beauty to beauty to beauty instead of having them stuck straight ahead and internal conflict and kind of looking but not really looking, how we can look but blur our eyes like we're looking but not. And I found some conversations I had with myself after I got out of the psych ward. I might have still been in the step-down facility when I was having these conversations. And I haven't listened to them yet, but I might listen to them and edit them and add them into the mix somewhere. And I might also read my emerging proud blog story and a couple other things I wrote at different times mainly just to share some other perspective of what I might write about some of this stuff and kind of to make some of this more complete and also to share those views and I've heard them echoed in in other people and in advocates and what they say and and I feel like by voicing them it might resonate with something deep in one's neurology and being that actually allows one's true voice about how one feels about things to come through instead of just sort of this translated voice of smiling and nodding one's way through the mental health system. It's because so many of these things are not okay, but we allow them to go on because we kind of have to. Because if we speak up, a lot of times it's just a sign of our mental illness. And I don't want to keep fighting the system, and I haven't really been fighting the system, but 
these few things that I've written are sort of a little bit more harsh and to the point about how I've seen things and and then that way I can just have it on video and, and let it go and and not feel like I have to revisit that. It's energy put on a video that can then be seen by whoever might happen upon it and maybe if people happen upon it they're meant to happen upon it and instead of actually going out there in a contrived way. This conversation with myself is is partly contrived but at the same time it's mostly natural and and just adding those last bits that I would no longer wish to continue to say might be good to put it away instead of thinking that it's something I have to to keep in mind. The things I talk about with myself, I want to be able to just drop and never say again. That's part of the reason for recording it. So I don't have to go around trying to initiate this conversation with every person I meet. I can just talk to myself and put it out there maybe and then be done with it. I want to talk about this stuff for the rest of my life. But that's what often happens to us as advocates and maybe part of this self-dialogue process could be healing in that one can say everything one wants to say to oneself about whatever and then just put it out there or not and just let it go and not turn into lifelong advocates fighting this huge giant that will never be squashed by fighting them. It'll be squashed by moving on and almost just flicking it off one's shoulder like like a mosquito that has no power and and moving on with one's life and not even giving any kind of energy to it anymore. And I don't know if that's true, I'm just making that up right now, but that's kind of part of talking oneself out of it, is just to be out of it and and use the process of talking oneself out of it to actually be the agent of continuing to participate in change without actually having to continue to participate in change. So by talking myself through this process, I can perhaps share it and that may continue to help me participate in change without ever having to try to work on participating change in the mental health system ever again. Because it could be that if I even dip my toe in it, it could invite me back into having to be receiving services involuntarily in some way from that system. So I'm seeing now that this is part of the design of it, is to really have this as the final say about it and the final word, not having to actually be involved in it. It's sort of mental health advocacy by proxy. It is being an advocate without being an advocate. It's doing all the advocacy as one is in the process of talking oneself out of the system in order to just shake off that last little bit of it and, and say goodbye to it and not participate anymore and just have it as videos because even looking at that again could be dangerous. Because it's a very dangerous system. It's very powerful energetically. 
It's like this vortex that can suck anybody into it. And maybe these conversations will keep going on. And maybe I will keep talking to myself and just eventually not talk about mental health. Or maybe one day I'll just stop deciding to talk about mental health altogether or talk to myself altogether. And maybe I won't talk to anyone in person about this. Maybe I'll just refuse. It's not part of my life. Or maybe this will invite conversation and I'll continue to talk in some kind of way. And who knows what's going to happen. And it looks like after this I have some extrapolations that were from the few days before I finished coming off the meds and I'll go through those and then maybe read some of that other stuff and just continue to talk to myself about being off meds and what that means moving forward. And some of the extrapolations I wrote, life can create words, but words cannot create life. And it seems like we're lost in words. And in this process, it feels like this being in consciousness is more in contact with life. And life can create words by being in contact with life. But usually we're just in contact with words, creating more words about words. And it's not really life in that moment, creating words. So can we reverse that process? Can we see that words do not create life? They do not create meaning. Life creates meaning, and life might create meaningful words, but words without connection to life have no meaning, even if they sound meaningful. So can we shed old meanings to be in contact with the meanings of the moment? And in the process, at first, old meanings are mixed in, and words creating life or words creating the experience of life is mixed in, and it can be confusing and scary. If life is creating something, but words come in and try and say what that is and what it means according to past experience or what we've seen in the movies or something else, then it can be scary. But without that interpretation, it could be something altogether different. And can we witness the meanings? Can we witness that energy of life instead of being in and enacting old programs? of words being superimposed over life. Words meeting life, and those words meeting life creates the way we act. Whereas life meeting the life of our being can create our words and, and the way we act, and it's completely different because it's meeting the life of the moment. The moment is life. The moment is all of life. There is no past or future. And this moment right now contains all of life. Yet we're meeting it with this tiny fragment of words that we've picked up like, like a fishnet accumulating garbage as it's dragged along the seafloor. And I remember meeting someone who went to Byron Katie's workshop on the work and and I don't know much about her, so I really can't comment, but he was explaining a process where if you have a thought, you constantly tell yourself or ask yourself, is it true? Is it true? Is it true? So if I think, 
I am an angry person, I would think. Is it true? Is it true? Well, I would think instead to myself, perhaps, does it mean anything? Who cares if it's true or not? Does it really mean anything? If it's completely meaningless, even if it is true or false, then maybe it can just be dropped. And maybe ask, is it related to the moment? So if I'm thinking about a memory 10 years ago and I'm thinking whether or not it's true, well, it could be true. Or maybe I'm supposed to tell myself it's not, but maybe I'm supposed to question whether it is or not by asking myself, is it true? But if it has nothing to do with the moment, then in a way it's not true because it's not true right now. And if it has nothing to do with the moment, even if it is true in terms of the progression of time and one's life experience, it has nothing to do with the moment, so it's irrelevant. And it's more about, is the moment creating words, or are words creating the moment? Or are words distorting the moment? Or are words moving us somewhere other than the moment? Are words containing the moment? The, the moment can contain words, it can create words, or words can actually contain or limit the moment. And she talks about doing the work, and again, I don't know much about her, so I can't comment, but more of what I hear, I just, it prompts me to think of certain extrapolations that don't necessarily have anything to do with the essence of what someone else is doing. So it's not commenting on that, or whether it's valuable or not, it's just my brain gets activated in this interesting way that makes me actually interested in the languaging that people use. and. And to me, it's not that we do the work, but we are work itself. And work is, in a way, is action. It's, it's force times distance in physics, and force is mass times acceleration. So it's, it's moving a mass a certain distance. And each moment we're sort of moving the mass of our body a certain distance. So can we be the work? Can we be the work of the universe? instead of just this little mechanism of the ego. Can we be action? Until next time, see for yourself. I just realized that if I do one more video, I will be at 300 videos for the year. And that's the period of June 7, 2016 to today's the 6th of 2017. So it'll be 300 before the 7th, and then that's including the 9 videos I did on the 7th and 8th. But then if I subtract those videos and move the year date to the 20th, I have 12 more days to make 9 videos. So I have a couple anniversaries for myself, and maybe I'll try to include a little celebration video I made as a joke when was it? I don't know when it was exactly, but it's just kind of silly, and this could be celebrating the one year of self-dialogue, the first one year mark. I have three. And also celebrating coming off meds. So I'll make a little video to myself, but I'll probably edit it tomorrow. I always try to edit the video the same day because sometimes if it goes up into the cloud and it's a big video, it's hard to get out of that damn cloud. I remember when I first started making videos, a bunch of them went into the cloud and I couldn't get them out. 
and I actually had to upgrade my internet to the fastest possible available and upgrade the modem and everything to pull those darn videos out of the cloud so I could edit them. And then they went up in a weird order, so it was kind of a mess. So yeah, this process definitely requires a certain capacity of technology to be able to translate it. But I will chance it and edit it tomorrow. And I just finished editing my two videos that I made earlier, and I made a lot of different extrapolations of varying topics and one thing I saw was this really cool bluebird that I like here he ate a little bumblebee and I was thinking that that bumblebee is typically a very useful insect as we see in our brains and and the bird ate this very useful bumblebee that might have pollinated thousands upon thousands of flowers and made all this honey and participated in its colony and it was a part of this larger thing and the bird just came along and just ate it. Well, actually he put it in his mouth and I think he was taking it back to one of his young growing into adult bird offspring. And so this insect and all this useful work it could have done was translated into a very temporary and transient meal for one little bluebird. So all the bees work it would have done is now transformed into some energy and fuel for cells and maybe cell division of this growing bird. And I was thinking about how if it would have eaten an uglier insect or something that is seemingly less useful than a bee, it might have been a different experience for me to watch. So it made me question this whole usefulness and value thing. According to the bluebird, it was just another bug and it was just food. So, hmm, I felt bad for the little bee. It looked kind of like a baby bumblebee. And I was also thinking about that clip of Carrie Fisher's brother saying how treatment and medication was so good for for his sister. I don't even think he used the word medication, he just used treatment to keep it so broad as to not really promoting medication, but what else does that really mean? And I was thinking about how he's sort of saying it to kids in, and referencing her as, as a Star Wars character and part of her success and being able to perform that character was due to treatment. And I was thinking about how bipolar meds and psych meds probably would suppress the force. So if a psychiatrist came across Luke Skywalker training with Yoda to learn the force, Luke Skywalker probably would have been medicated and we would never have the Star Wars series. And then Princess Leia would have never had a part to perform. The psychiatrist probably would have said, I don't see any Yoda. What are you talking about? You're hallucinating and you're trying to move things with your mind and your hand. I'm going to give you these medications to make you feel better. And that's kind of what I feel like was done to me. There was this energy and this sort of power moving through and, and that was translated into a meaningless mental illness. 
and and Luke had Yoda in order to learn the force and we as people who get access to this force of energy of the moment this other energy this other dimension we don't have any Yoda trainers to help us and maybe we need some kind of Yoda influence in order to master these energies because just like Luke with the dark side of the force, there is a dark side to these energies when we let our our anger and things translate the energy of the moment. So as nice as it is to say that it was helpful for for somebody, it also suppresses certain things that we know little about and we never will know much about until until Yoda comes to Earth and starts trying to help train us up. And another thing I thought of, and I was also feeling like, hopefully I won't keep talking about this kind of psychiatry stuff because I'm not completely anti-psychiatry. I could have done a lot of videos along the way when I was having so much fun in the system and and I didn't. I'm doing it more in this transition phase so luckily I had 99% positive experience in the system or maybe 95 but somehow that 5% is is fueling a lot of this transition and transformation and dialogue luckily all the positive things I just got to bask in the moment of that and be in it in real time and when it's so fun and enjoyable and energetic, there's nothing to talk about. There's no energy to process outside that moment and talk about oneself with. It's just this effortless flow. So most of it was wonderful effortless flow with wonderful people inside the system, outside the system, friends, family, colleagues, workers, psychiatrists even. People are people and that's the thing. When I'm talking about this and depersonalizing it by saying psychiatrists and this and that, those people are people and they have so many other dimensions in their life that I'm sure are wonderful. And all the people that I contacted with those labels of psychiatrist or, or mental health worker, they're all amazing people, barring just a couple that I would not wish to contact ever again. But... They're all amazing people and they made life so wonderful that there's nothing else to talk about than just being so immersed in the beauty of life. And I'm so thankful that 95% of my life was like that before I started talking to myself and before I had that bad experience in the psych ward last April. And there was nothing to talk to myself about. It was just living life. And hopefully this is just a conversation that is from this difficult transition period and transitioning into something else and moving on and again not having anything to talk about outside the moment because really with this conversation with myself I haven't done justice to all the wonderfulness and and hopefully that is just in daily life in living life because another thing I thought of that was kind of interesting is that I feel like when psychiatrists take their training, they should have to go on antipsychotics for an extended period of time, at least two weeks. 
and then see what it feels like to be on them, to come off of them, maybe be on them for several months and really feel that because police officers have to experience pepper spray. So they really know what they're doing to somebody. So why shouldn't a psychiatrist get some kind of injection of something that knocks them out? Why don't they get thrown in a an isolation room? Why don't they experience some of these things that that they subject people to? And if they did take the treatments, maybe they would end up with a mental illness due to the trauma that that inflicts. So even if somebody comes in traumatized and doesn't necessarily have a mental illness, with the way they're received and medicated and treated, as in treated badly, that's enough to induce or put a person over the edge of trauma, past the point of no return, into the category of of being labeled with a mental illness. It's like if this person doesn't have one, we're going to make sure they have one by the time they leave because of the way we're going to receive them and treat them. And I forgot to talk about how I edited my video that I made in the middle of the night when my friend was here and I don't remember saying any of that stuff really. I talked about taking the extra Benadryl and I remember in the video I made after that but I hadn't yet edited the night video. I was talking about how I don't think I took that extra Benadryl that first night but I did and I don't remember actually experiencing any of that weird nauseating feeling that I had as a child that night but I talked about how I was experiencing that and so that was interesting and I talked about a bunch of other things that I don't even remember right now but like talking about how I should call Hardy Nutritionals on Monday and I didn't call them on Monday because I forgot that I said that and and so many things so I forget what I wanted to mention besides that thing about my my sensation as a child and I feel as a trans conscious person I'm in this transitioning phase kind of like transgender people go through a physical transformation and their consciousness feels like the opposite sex and then they and they go through a physical transformation well my consciousness doesn't feel like a consistent ego consciousness it feels trans and I don't know if I'm transitioning into complete inconsistency or what it is exactly but I'm hoping that there's some kind of transitioning now that there has been trans ending and in terms of how we're received in the psych ward I don't feel like anything should be done to us because if somebody's been through any kind of trauma it's likely because something was done to them so to go to the hospital where it's supposed to be a safe healing place and have things done to us against our will or in a coercive manner is just going to add to that trauma and resonate with it and activate us speaking out that trauma because we're again in a situation where something's being done to us and so really it might not be a symptom of any kind of mental illness it could be speaking as the moment of past trauma because something again is being done to us and we're afraid and I mean nothing should be done to us in terms of forcing us to take medications against our will or without proper informed consent 
without properly informing us of the risks. And I noticed in the last two videos when I was talking, I, I sounded a little bit like I chose to take medications when I never did choose. I was, I was forced to take them in the hospital and then I was stuck on them by the time I left six weeks later. And that wasn't a choice. That wasn't something I chose. It was something that I was indoctrinated into and had to take a very long and arduous journey to get out of. So any languaging around, I chose to take meds, even though in a way I did choose to take them and go through this long, drawn-out process, and I'm glad that I did because of all that I've learned, but it's not something I would have chosen for myself. It's not something I wanted. It's not something that was a good thing in a way, but in a way by taking that thing that I didn't want that was not good for me, it created a lot of good things in my life. Good people, good supports and everything. So in a way it was good for the time. So maybe I fear a little bit losing the good that was created through going through a process I didn't want and I could have resisted, but I didn't. I never did resist it. I guess now, since it hasn't been going as smooth the last two years, it's been creating this want to not be in that anymore because it's not helping. And the risks of that kind of help are, are outweighing the benefits. It was more of a trap and having to move out of it slowly and choosing to go out of it slowly as opposed to just resisting it and throwing it away and maybe ending up on the streets or something. So that's my short 300th video, my June 7th anniversary 300th video. And, and I will keep going and edit this tomorrow. Thank you for listening to Bipolar Inquiry. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember, use your voice, craft your consciousness, embody your potential, enter a quantum paradigm. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information in this show is not medical advice. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.